0: Greetings, all, and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. In the past decade, a renewed focus has been placed on reforming the system of incarceration in the United States. Phrases like prison industrial complex and mass incarceration have entered mainstream political lexicon. And most people are no longer surprised to learn that we lock up more of our citizens than any other developed country in the world. Politicians who were once tough on crime are now considering alternatives to incarceration and treating social ills like addiction and mental illness as public health crises, rather than locking up the most vulnerable among us. Many would argue that our system of incarceration is inhumane, and even the stubborn among us would acknowledge that it's a poor allocation of resources. Needless to say, there is still much work to be done, but the conversation has certainly shifted in favor of reform. Similarly, The conversation around the rights of transgender people has shifted dramatically in this same time period with numerous significant legal and cultural victories in the past decade. Again, advocates would remind us that there is still a long way to go toward achieving full acceptance and social equality for transgender people in our society, but considerable progress has been made. What we'd like to discuss on today's show is what occurs at the intersection of these issues, which is not part of our national conversation. How do we protect and preserve the safety and dignity of transgender people when they are incarcerated? What is their experience inside and what needs to change? I'm joined today by two journalists who have written extensively on this issue. Victoria Law is a freelance journalist focusing specifically on women's incarceration and criminalization. She's also the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-author of the forthcoming Your Home is Your Prison. Aviva Stahl is a Brooklyn-based journalist who writes about prison, national security, and immigration detention. She focuses on the experience of trans prisoners and people accused of terrorism offenses. Aviva's work has been published by a number of outlets, including Rolling Stone Magazine, The Guardian, The Intercept, Harper's, Vice Magazine, The Village Voice, and many others. Vicki, I'd like to start with you. You've been working on a story about trans-specific housing units in New York City jails, and some of the issues that have come up since the policy was initiated. Firstly, do you know whether there are other jurisdictions in the U.S. that have trans housing units? Is this something that's unique to New York City?
1: I would say no. Aviva, have you heard of other jurisdictions that specifically have trans housing units, whether or not they are actually utilized to their full capacity?
2: Um, well, I think it's complicated because under like the Prison and Rape Elimination Act, actually not permitted to have, like, units specifically for trans or gay people unless they're created under a court order. So, for example, the Los Angeles City Jail has a gay and trans, a unit for gay men and trans women, but that was created under, a, like, a court order. And so I think in New York City, they there was a long back and forth between... Um, within like, the city administration about whether they had to shut down the trans housing unit because it violated PREA, it seems like they're trying to come to some agreement where they don't have to, but in that's one complicating factor. In
0: what way would this violate PREA?
2: Well, because PREA specifically says that you're not permitted to segregate people based on their gender identity exclusively, unless the, unless the unit was created through a court order. And the intention behind that was that people shouldn't be discriminated against, I guess, systemically. I don't think it was intended to be prevent safekeeping. It was intended to like prevent people from being segregated unnecessarily, but it has not necessarily had the impact that um, people advocates wanted. So that's one issue. I do know, I mean, there are plenty of places across the country um, where trans people are housed. There's like a vulnerable populations unit, for example, that's sort of like protective custody, which sometimes is a form of solitary confinement, right? Sometimes it means that people are locked up 23, 24 hours a day. And sometimes there are vulnerable population units where people do spend most of their time out on the tier and have like fairly regular access to recreation and stuff. So I know there are states like in Texas and in California where they have like tended to put a lot of the trans women on the same vulnerable population unit so that they're safer and don't end up in isolation as much. Um, But I think generally those aren't like formalized programs. Just to my understanding, though, I could be wrong. They're not formalized programs. That's just how they tend to operate.
0: Right.
2: And
1: sometimes the vulnerable population aspect also leads to other violence. Like I know in Kern Valley State Prison in Delano, California, um, which is somewhere in Southern California, there's what they call the Sensitive Needs Yard, or SNY, where the Department of uh, Corrections and Rehabilitation places trans women, but it also places former gang members who debriefed or snitched in order to get out of solitary confinement. And putting these two populations together, both of whom are extremely vulnerable to violence for different reasons, has often proven to be extremely harmful to the trans women on the unit who are suddenly... House with people who may not want to be around trans, but may, you know, may be very transphobic and homophobic. Also, you know, like have been sitting in solitary confinement for who knows how long for being gang members or for being accused of being gang members and are now out and ready to lash out at, you know, whoever is the most vulnerable because people tend to kick down and not to kick up. And I know at Kern Valley, this has resulted in multiple assaults against trans women. And it's also resulted in at least one stabbing death of a trans woman by her cellmate who was from a gang. And they were placed in a cell together. And I believe that the man had actually threatened to kill her and had said this numerous times in front of staff members she had reported it to staff members and she was not moved and he was not moved and he killed her Um, and he went to back into the shoe um, was charged with murder obviously uh, but the trans women on the yard said staff didn't take these threats seriously this didn't come out of nowhere again and again and again he said transphobic comments he said he didn't want to be in a cell with her he said he would kill her if she was not out of that cell and again and again everybody just was like eh, too bad so sad so there's also a danger in deciding just to throw people who are considered vulnerable for various reasons into one unit and hoping that everything will come out okay or somehow they will all be collectively less vulnerable to violence
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I think like the progress that I think has been the most important or impressive is, you know, when state or local jurisdictions decide that they're not going to create a trans housing unit, but they're actually just going to house trans people according to their gender identity or allow trans people to decide where they feel they'll be safest to be housed. So I think in Connecticut, just two months ago, they passed legislation that codified you know, changes that had been made a few months prior by the DOC, which means that trans people are preemptively housed according to their gender identity. Whereas, like in a lot of other places, trans people are preemptively housed, you know, with a the gender they were assigned at birth, and only in very, very rare circumstances are they housed according to their gender identity. So, um, I, you know, Vicky was talking about these horrible things that happen to trans people on these vulnerable population units, or even at Rikers, the trans housing unit, speaking to advocates is far from perfect, um, but especially for trans women, oftentimes being housed in women's facilities offers way more safety than
0: the other options that might be on the table. Right. And cu- including options that can be incidentally punitive, right? Like what you're talking about, a lot of times the administrative segregation, uh, where they might put someone for their own safety, you know, ends up being something very close to a solitary housing unit, which is something that uh vicky and i discussed at length
2: yeah uh, definitely i mean i know women in trans women in new york state prisons who've spent you know 10 plus years in in, in, in like forms of in, in involuntary protective custody because they weren't safe on the yard for various reasons so
0: can really uh, I, I did want to ask you aviva about your piece in rolling stone last year uh, about a woman a trans woman uh, in jail for life in california who sued to get sexual reassignment surgery. I hope I'm characterizing that story properly. Can you tell us a little bit about her story and what uh, the broader implications might be for trans people in prison and and beyond in the the United States? Sure.
2: Yeah. So Shiloh Heavenly Quinn made history by becoming the first trans person on the inside in the U S to get uh, gender confirmation surgery and, uh, at least known person, um, which is pretty exciting. That happened in January of 2017. And after she got the surgery, she was able to be moved into a woman's facility where she is now. So I think the case is important for a number of reasons. The first is that it sort of underlines the fact that um, trans, like transition, if you're if medical transition related care is as medically necessary as any other form of medical care. So if a trans person feels they need, uh, gender confirmation surgery that they can access it or they have a constitutional right to it just like a person in prison would have a right to get medical care for any other serious condition um, that's one thing that's really important, um, both for people on the inside and for people, trans people on the outside too. The other reason it's really important is because for a lot of people like Shiloh, who's serving life in prison with like the pain and suffering that goes along with it, in prisons and jails across the US, there's really a huge, huge range in the kind of care that trans people can get. Um, so there, for example, there are some states where there are still what's called freeze frame policies in place. Um, which means that trans people can only get the level of care that they had access to on the outside. So, for example, if a trans person didn't have a prescription for hormones before they were incarcerated, they wouldn't be able to get on hormones once they were inside, which is an issue for a lot of reasons. One being that a lot of trans people, if they don't have access to quality medical care on the outside, might buy hormones on the street or might not have access to hormones at all. And so not being able to access it on the, in- it on the inside is a really big deal. Um, even in places like New York, you can get hormones on the inside, but to my knowledge, there's never been someone who's gotten surgery. So California is sort of leading the way when it comes to that, but it seems like a lot of states, including New York, from what I've heard, there is movement on the inside for people to get evaluated for surgery. It's just uh, not happened
0: yet. Right. And she got it. I mean, she had to sue the state, right? Hmm.
2: Yeah, there was a long protracted legal battle and there was a trans woman before her who I think won the right to get surgery, but was paroled by the state before. Uh, apparently, the state would prefer for her to like fight for access on the outside than to give it to her on the inside. Um, but yeah, I think is one of the happiest stories I've been able to write in a long time it really changed her life and yeah it's really exciting to see this win happen you know it's has only affected, affected a really small number of people so far but um yeah i think is really exciting
0: right yeah it is it's a fantastic story and her photo uh for those uh, who want to look it up The the photo of this woman is fantastic, too, with her in front of the the American flag, (laughs) the big (laughs) smile on her face. Uh, It is, you know, for for those of us who write about issues in incarceration, there are a lot of sad stories. Um, But this one was uh, exceptional and uplifting. Uh, That's part of the reason I wanted to leave with that. Uh, I am also curious, uh, just because there's been so much discussion lately rightly so, about immigration detention, and we're talking about intersecting issues here today. This is another story of yours, Aviva, of um, which is about uh, a piece, your piece for Vice last year, which was about trans people in an immigration detention center, uh, and whatever issues were presented there. Apparently, they closed the facility. We're talking about closing the facility. What was the story there?
2: Yeah, so there used to be one in uh, Santa Ana, in the Santa Ana City Jail in California, but actually there's kind of this coalition of trans and queer immigration activists um, and the kind of immigrant justice community more broadly, that campaign to shut, to kick ICE out of the facility altogether, which they won. And so the unit, the trans unit kind of didn't exist for a little bit. And now it is in Cibola, which is in New Mexico, I think, question mark. I think it's in New Mexico. Is it in Texas or New Mexico? No, they initially said it was going to be at Texas, but then it ended up. Okay. What I found really interesting and what sort of drew me to write about um, the trans housing unit was the kind of debate amongst a lot of queer and trans activists about um, whether to push for the trans units. And I think uh, to read about kind of a history of uh, prison expansion um, is also to know that in some ways advocating for better conditions means, I mean or Vicky can speak to this more eloquently than I can, um, that in some ways advocating for better conditions can lead to the creation of,
0: like, the expansion of the prison industrial complex instead of it shrinking. Right, so the result would yeah. be, okay, we'll build a new facility. Great, there's more people, mm-hmm. more opportunities and more space uh, to incarcerate people. Yeah, that's
2: right. yeah. And when I toured the facility... Uh, You know, ICE were like very, very happy to let me in and show me around, which I think is telling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But they really positioned themselves at I think being at the forefront of kind of trans advocacy um, and trans care issues. Um, But in reality, you know, they're holding they were holding two dozen trans women in a unit where maybe they were safe from harassment from. Other detainees, but they were still searched by male guards. Um, they didn't really have any access to outdoor space for years for some of them. And from what I understand, things at Sibola are definitely not any better. So yeah, there were some activists that were really pushing, you know, pushing against the unit, saying that we shouldn't kind of give ICE that credibility to create the, mm-hmm. run the trans unit. And there were also, you know, plenty of advocates and former detainees saying that we need, like, intermediate measures for trans women in detention to be housed more, to be have safer conditions. So that's sort of what I delved into in the story is, uh, was that kind of split and what the mobilization looked like to shut down the unit at Santana.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating consideration. I remember a few years ago, you know, they built a new juvenile hall in San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, it was the facility that I was housed in when I was a teenager, which really was old, you know, from the 40s and 50s and dilapidated and the the roofs leaked when it rained and the, the, the rooms were freezing cold, everything was broken. Uh, but then, you know, when they opened the new one. I, they said, oh, you know, this is great. What a what a wonderful new, like gleaming, beautiful facility. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know, not really. Is that really that exciting? <laughs> Obviously, people who are there shouldn't be sitting in a cold room, but I don't know that we necessarily need to allocate the resources for a big, beautiful, gleaming jail on a hill. Uh, so to hear that um, the unintended consequence of advocating for housing for trans people in prison is that you might just... Be creating more spaces for incarceration is uh, wow, pretty profound, pretty mm-hmm. profound insight. Uh, I want to turn to you, Vicky, just because I'm mm-hmm. curious as we're kind of winding down about your ongoing reporting. I know this isn't a story that's been published yet, and you know, you feel free to reveal as much or as little as you want. But I'm curious what you've learned in your reporting about. The trans housing unit and corrections. I know that you and I have tried to coordinate to talk mm-hmm. to some people who have been in the unit. What what are you trying to find out? What are the obstacles to getting any information? And, and what are some of your questions about uh, the trans housing unit in well, New York City?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as Aviva pointed out, um, you know the the trans housing unit in the New York City jail system. You know um, is Problematic. It's one of the few trans, you know, specific trans housing units in the country. Um, the Department of Corrections, for the past two years, has stated that it violates the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which states that you cannot segregate trans people based solely on gender identity. So, like, you can't say, or, and you can't segregate. Uh, gay or lesbian people based on their sexual orientation. So you can't just say, like, we're going to just, like, throw you all in some awful unit, which has been done in the past, say, in Los Angeles, the Sybil County Jail, um, and um, the prison in Virginia where prison administrators actually segregated lesbians or women that they thought, people that they thought were lesbians, specifically because they didn't want lesbians around. But um, so the Prison Rape Elimination Act actually... They said, you cannot do this. Um, difference with the trans housing unit, which advocates have argued, who have argued against its closure, is that trans women are applying to be in the trans housing unit. They're saying this is safer than the DOC practice of placing trans women in housing units where they are subject to violence, not only um, from the men around them, but also from staff. I've interviewed numerous trans women over the years who have spent some time at Rikers Island, and all of them talk about having been sexually abused and sexually assaulted by men around them and or staff, but it was repeated sexual abuse that might not have happened, you know, had they been in either the women's unit or in a unit away from, like, the larger male population. Um, Bill de Blasio, a few months, Mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City a few months ago um, announced that the Department of Correction was going to start housing people in custody according to their gender identity, um, whether this actually means that the Department of Correction will actually start housing trans women in the women's jails and trans men in the men's jails. Or whether this means that more people will just be shuttled into this 26-bed trans-housing unit actually remains to be seen. Um, there's like a six-month window that the Department of Correction has to actually put this put something into place and supposedly they're working on it. But what I've been seeing is that um, even though there's a 26-bed trans-housing unit, there actually haven't been a lot of people placed into it. Many... Trans women are not told about the trans housing unit during intake. So no, nobody tells them, you know, at intake, Oh, you know, you identify as a trans woman. Maybe you want to apply for the trans housing unit. Um, Many of them don't know about this until they get onto a male housing unit. And then either somebody else who's incarcerated tells them or some officer is like, why aren't you on the trans housing? And after that, They figure out how to get an application and apply. So I think that the number is like um, somebody might spend up to um, an average of 81 days at Rikers Island before they find out that there is a trans health unit for which they can apply. And then the average response time to their application is 85 days. And according to the Board of Correction, which is the city agency appointed to monitor positions and keep track of the data over 50% of the people who've applied are ultimately not placed in the trans housing unit. Well, this
0: sounds, I I, I, I might be such a complicated issue, right? And and Mm -hmm. Aviva raised many points about why there are unintended consequences to advocacy. Mm -hmm. But this seems pretty straightforward. Like, uh, it wouldn't be that hard to implement a policy that, you know, everyone gets screened at intake. Um, just to ask a a question about a person's gender identity or ask, or at least Mm -hmm. make people aware of the fact that there were housing options at intake. Are there people who are doing that kind of advocacy work now just to say, like add a a question to intake that addresses this, or are you just discovering this now? And it's probably not even public knowledge, even among uh, advocates.
1: Uh, it was discovered, so advocates know that people don't know about the trans-housing unit, um, but in order to, say, have access to people, like, they're, they're not, you know, like, stationed at Rikers Island in a place for listeners who may not know about jails. You don't get to just wander all over the place, like, Orange is New Black, where you're, like, wandering around the jail all day. Like, they're <laughs> a very controlled movement. So it's yeah. not like, you know, you can station yourself in a place where everybody's just passing by you and you can, I don't know, have a sign or tell people, um, you need to actually know who you're going to go talk to and who, you know, like who, who the person is, you know, and have access to go talk to them. You can't just like, you know, put up a shingle and say, you know, come talk to me about trans issues. If you know you want. So, um, so there, like I mentioned there was, there's a city agency that's tasked, with monitoring jail conditions and they're supposed to be holding the Department of Corrections accountable for lapses like this. You have a trans housing unit already. Nobody's asking you to build a new trans housing unit. Nobody's asking you to build another jail. You have an existing jail. It is often not full. Most of the time people don't know about it. Tell people about it. Why are you not telling people about it? And the Department of Correction has been very silent about why there is this lack of this one question on the intake form or whatever that could be done and doesn't necessarily require a lot
0: of yeah there's it's not there's not yeah exactly you don't need a huge allocation of resources mm-hmm. there's you know the mm-hmm. the the unit already exists it's just about mm-hmm. making people aware of it yeah. uh, thank you for that update i mean i'm I'm fascinated by this story and I'm always trying to check in with you uh, for updates and like I said we're still strategizing to try and Uh, hear the experiences of people who have been in the trans housing unit. I would love eventually to have someone on the show uh, so they could talk about it for us. I want to thank both of you for being here today, Vicky and Aviva. This has been really informative for me. I think really informative for our listeners. Uh, A very important issue, intersection of two crucial issues. And, you know, I know we just scratched the surface today. There's so much more to explore. It's such a huge issue. There's so many municipalities and jurisdictions in this country that have different policies. It's part of the reason that criminal justice advocacy is so confusing. Mm -hmm. It's because everybody has different rules and different Mm -hmm. language. But this is a really, really helpful overview. uh, And I think it's been very beneficial for our listeners and for us. So thanks to both of you for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, And I hope that I hope that we can uh, have you back soon because both of you are working on a a whole range of uh, fascinating stories. I know, uh, Vicky, you do a lot of work uh, about women in Mm -hmm. prison—just its it's own. So, uh, so thanks to both of you for being here. I know it's late. I know you're tired, but I appreciate you hanging in there. Thanks so much to everybody for joining us. Thanks to Vicky. Thanks to Aviva. Thanks to all of our listeners. We'll see you again soon. Have a good night.
1: This episode of Quest on Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.